Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, if you are new, this is the Bible. All right, we'll just start right there. This is the Bible. And uh, there's a book in here called John. It's toward the end. And we're in John chapter 17. And we're taking the better part of a year and just going verse by verse through the gospel of John, written by one of Jesus' nearest and dearest friends, was there for all of Jesus' life, death, burial, ministry, resurrection, all of it. And what we're looking at in John chapter 17 is the last days of Jesus. He's right on the brink of going to the cross, suffering and dying. This is the end of his life. And when you're nearing the end of life, the things that you do are the most important things and the things that you talk about are the most important things. And what Jesus does, he, he stops and he prays what is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus in all of human history. And it's three parts. Last week, we looked at how Jesus prays for himself. This week, he prays for Christians. Next week, he prays for non-Christians. The big idea is basically Jesus in this prayer, he prays for everybody because Jesus loves everybody. And one of the greatest, surest, quickest ways to build a relationship is to pray for one another and to pray with one another. All right, this is the big idea. And this is the action item in the homework assignment for you. Praying for someone and praying with someone is how you build a relationship. That's the surest way to do so. And I'll give you an example. I was thinking about it this morning. A couple of years ago, Grace and our five kids, we were in the most difficult season of our entire life. I won't get into all the drama and details, but it was a very difficult season. And the phone rang and it was a pastor of a large church. I won't name drop well-known, significant leader. I had never met them. I didn't really know them. And they called. And I was kind of surprised that they called. And uh, he said, uh, hey, Pastor Mark, this is Pastor so-and-so. And I said, yeah. I said, well, what can I do for you? He said, uh, can I just ask you a few questions? And I'll just be honest. I, I didn't want to answer any questions. I feel like, how many of you have had that? When people call, they say, I got questions. They're like, man, I, no, no, I don't want, no, I said, I don't want to, I've been on trial. I don't want to sit in the box and, you know, no. He didn't ask those questions. Instead, he asked, uh, how's your wife, Grace? That was his first question. I, got, I kind of choked up. I said, well, thank you for asking. He said, uh, how's, your, uh, how's your oldest daughter, Ashley? How's your son, Zach? How's your son, Calvin? How's your daughter, Lexi? How's your son, Gideon? By now, I, I am crying. I, I look like I just won Miss America. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in tears, right? So at this point, I, I said, uh, Pastor did your assistant, because I'm jaded, skeptical, right? I said, did your assistant give you a cheat sheet with the names of all the people in my family? He said, no, I pray for them every day, so I just know who they are. I said, sir, I've never met you. He said, yeah, I wanna, I wanna fix that. My wife and I want you to get on a plane with your wife and come down and spend some time with us. We've been praying for you. Immediately, my heart opened like, wow, I, I already love you and I don't even know you. If you'll pray for me and my family, I like you, amen? So we got on a plane, Grace and I did. We landed, we didn't know this couple. They picked us up at the airport, took us to their house where we stayed for a few days and they opened their life to us. They opened their fridge to us. They opened their family to us. We got to know their kids, their grandkids, healthy, loving, joyful, godly, wonderful, extraordinary family. And we were processing with them. They were safe, they were private, they were, they were godly. And we would talk and they would say, gosh, you know, can't fix that, let's pray about it. So over the course of a few days, we just prayed a lot, but it was more talk, pray, talk, pray, talk, pray, talk, pray, talk, pray, talk, pray. By the end, we love these people, amen? I mean, if somebody's gonna pray for you and feed you, either one of those, I'm gonna love you. You do both of those, we're gonna get matching sweatshirts, we're gonna ride a tandem bike, we're best friends forever, amen? That's it, I'm gonna get your name tattooed somewhere on me, we're in, all right? and so. At the end, we got on a plane and came home and it felt like we've only known these people for days, but that relationship with them is deeper, safer than most relationships we've ever had. These people are still in our life. We love them. Uh, happy to report Grace and I are gonna actually see them this week. And so we're really looking forward to that. And they're now pastors in our life and people that we look up to and they're older than us. And, and, and we look at them in a spiritual authority and we really love and appreciate them. And the, and the big idea is this, that in a world that has very few really healthy, loving, devoted relationships, I think the shortest distance between two people is prayer. And as we pray together, we're building relationship with God and we're inviting God in to build our relationship. And I tell all of that 
to simply say this, Jesus today prays, he prays for you. That's amazing to me. How many people actively, regularly, consistently, and faithfully pray for you? How many people do you pray for? Jesus prays for you. And when Jesus is praying, it reveals the things that he believes are most important for you and I to know. And it invites us to live in obedience to his prayer so that his prayer is fulfilled through our obedience. So we'll start in John chapter 17, verses six through eight, where Jesus tells us the difference between the word and the world. Uh, Jesus says, I have manifested your name. He's praying to God the Father. So we looked last week, chapter 17, verse one, he looked up to heaven where he came from and he prayed, Father, God is Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. If you are a Christian or become a Christian, you are in the world, but you have been chosen by God, picked by God, delivered by God out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the word that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. What Jesus is saying here is, first of all, that he is right on the precipice of dying. So these are the last days and hours of Jesus. He knows he's gonna die for our sin as our savior, that he is going to rise and that eventually he is going to ascend back into heaven where he came down from once his mission is completed. And what he prays for us is our understanding of our relationship with the world. Because one day, if you belong to the Lord Jesus, you will follow him. You will die, your body will go into the ground, your soul will be present with the Lord. And then one day, Jesus will return, your body and soul will come together, you'll rise fully from death as Jesus did. There'll be a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Everything broken will be healed. Everything that is wrong will be made right. And every tear will be replaced with laughter and joy, amen? We're looking forward to that eternity. Knowing that that is our destiny, the question is how do we live until that day? I'll tell you, when Jesus comes back, everything's gonna be a lot easier. I promise you that. Until that day, things are gonna be more problematic. And so what he is saying is that we're in the world and that the world is opposed to God. That the world is actually dark and demonic and deadly. It is not good, glorious, or godly. And when he's using this word world, not to nerd out on you, but it's a, it's a word that is used in seven different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to the whole planet or all the people or a group of people or a nation or a culture or a fallen system. And uh, it's not talking here about nations or cultures because God loves all nations, God loves all races. And we see in Revelation five, that people from every tribe, language, tongue, they'll be gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him forever. John writes that in that book of Revelation, another book that he writes. What the world refers to here is a fallen corrupt system. And you need to know that God creates and that Satan counterfeits, that God creates this wonderful, glorious planet, and Satan corrupts it through sin. That God creates truth, and then Satan corrupts that with lies. That God creates life, and Satan corrupts that with death. That God creates light, and Satan corrupts that through moral and spiritual darkness. That God creates, and then Satan corrupts. And when it speaks of the world, it speaks that God made a culture and Satan has now corrupted that in the cultures of the earth. Let me tell you something that is very offensive, but very insightful. And that is that no culture on the earth is sacred. We tend to think, oh, you can't tell those people to change. That's their culture. That's the way that nation does it. That's the way that lifestyle or life choice manifests its own culture. All culture fits in the bucket of worldliness. Worldliness means that which is demonic, that which is fallen, that which is corrupted, that which is anti-God and anti-kingdom. When all is said and done, the kingdom of God will come down and the cultures of the earth will be no more. And all there will be is the kingdom culture of God. And the world is all of culture that is in disobedience to and rebellion against God. This shows up politically, this shows up economically, this shows up spiritually, this shows up educationally. Make no mistake, curriculum in schools, governmental systems, financial institutions, entertainment, various forms of cultural narratives and film and music and the like, 
much of that, if not most of that, if not all of that is worldly. It's against God. And so what Jesus is telling us is that there is a conflict between the world out here and the word up here. And the question is, as God's people, which will change, okay? I, I, I was on, had an interesting life. I was on CNN with a guy named Piers Morgan a few years ago. And uh, we got into a little discussion because I'll let you in on a secret, we disagree on everything. So we were talking and, uh, and he basically, and I would quote the Bible and he would say, you know, that's an old book. Can't we, his, I'm, I'm summarizing what he said. What he said was basically, can't we just edit, change, alter the word of God? I said, no, we cannot. I actually gave him a nice leather study Bible as a gift. I left it with him. He said, nobody else has given me a Bible. I hope he's reading it. But what, what he realized and what I appreciate is he realized that what the word says is different than what the world does. And the question is, if there is conflict or disagreement between the world and the word, which one needs to change? Right? And, and as a Christian, we would say the world needs to change. And the world would say, no, the word needs to change. This is the essence of the conflict. This is the heart of the controversy. So if you love Jesus and you read the Bible and you're trying to live forth biblical principles, what you're going to find is resistance and conflict. How many of you have experienced this? Family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. Some of you say, you know what? I would tell people what I think, but I just don't wanna deal with the grief. So I keep it to myself. That's where you know that there is hostility from the world. And uh, I didn't do this in the first service, but ultimately, when Jesus is praying for us, he is praying that we would have a deep and profound confidence in the word of God and that we would be willing to endure any conflict or resistance from the world. That is exactly what he is in the process of doing, not because we love the world, but because, uh, because we love the people in the world. And if people are believing things that are untrue and lead to death, we want them to believe things that are true and lead to life. And so what Jesus is praying, first and foremost, a full confidence in the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of God's word. And I've done this many times over the years, but there's basically only two ways to view the Bible. One essentially is like this, like we are in authority over it. Our culture is in authority over it. Our culture doesn't like gender, so we'll change that. Our culture doesn't agree with sexuality, so we'll alter that. Our culture thinks that certain things we've sort of outgrown and evolved beyond, and that the God of the Bible is primitive, and we've now sort of superseded him in morality, and we stand in judgment over him. Therefore, we take his word and we edit it so that it is up to date with all of the enlightenment that we now have, because we've evolved beyond God. If you're here and you're like, do you believe that answer? Oh, no. No, we believe this, that the word of God is the only perfect thing on the earth. We believe it is entirely trustworthy and true. We believe that we don't change it, that God sent it to change us. We don't believe that we edit it, we are seeking to obey it. And at any point we disagree with the word of God, we have succumbed to the pattern of the world and we need to repent or change our mind about what we think or want and come into alignment and agreement with God. And when we do, we're answering Jesus' prayer. He's gonna tell us here in just a few verses, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. This is the truth of God's word. And we come under it, we don't exercise authority over it. So Jesus' first prayer really is about you and your willingness to embrace the word of God and to allow that to have the conflict with the world. Jesus continues by talking about his people in terms of a family. So the word of God is primary and those who believe the word of God become the family of God. Uh, he says it this way, John 17, uh, nine through 12, I am praying for them. So Jesus is praying for the Christians. Just hear me in this. This is remarkable. Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples. He's going to be falsely accused, arrested. We're going to arrest God. He's going to be beaten beyond recognition. He is going to be put to death and murdered. And what does he do? He stops. And what does he do? He prays. Friends, what this reveals to us is the first priority is always prayer. And if you don't have time to pray, your priorities are out of order. Okay, first thing, pray first. And here's what Jesus does. He prays for himself. And then here he prays for you and me and us. 
this shows deep, profound compassion. Jesus is at the most difficult moment of his whole life on the earth. And he's not selfish, he's selfless. How many of you are like me? When you're suffering, you're selfish. Grace will testify, if I get the flu, I experience complete selfishness. I think that the universe should stop rotating on its axis. Somebody should bring me chicken soup, rub my back and say sorry while handing me a tissue. I am a very selfish person when I am suffering. Any of you like me, right? Okay, well, the rest of you are hypocrites if you don't agree with that point. Okay, so (laughs) Jesus here is suffering, but he also still has compassion and empathy and awareness for others. That's supernatural, that's remarkable. He's in his worst day and he's also concerned for our day, for your day. So he prays for you. I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world. Jesus doesn't want certain entertainment systems or certain cultural narratives or certain sexualities or ideologies or political philosophies to flourish and be blessed. Because those are death, not life. Those are Satan, not God. Those are hell, not heaven. So he doesn't pray for those things to succeed. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. People are God's priority. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Jesus knows that he's gonna die, rise and return and we will be here on the earth. A Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, unity. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have grant, uh, guarded them rather, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Okay, let me start here. Um, there are many metaphors for the church in the New Testament. One of my, my favorite, I'll tell you what it is, the family. The Bible says that the church is the household of God. Jesus here is praying to God as father. That means that we're the children of God. The Bible says to treat older men like fathers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, family language. You need to know my heart, I'm a dad. I got five kids, I'm a dad. I see us as a family. That's how I see this place. Wonderful people that God loves and Grace's heart is a mom's heart. My heart is a dad's heart. We wanna have a great loving, healthy church family. And, uh, and that's how we see the family of God. Now, that being said, Jesus here is going to the cross and then he's going to go through the cross and through the tomb and return to heaven. And what he says is, Father, I haven't lost any of your kids, okay? How many of you have a kid? How many of your parents? How many of you have lost a kid? You notice all the same hands are up, if the people are honest. If you have a child, at some point you lose that child, right? Some of you are singing, you're like, I can't believe that, that's terrible. And the parents will be like, just wait, just wait, just wait, just wait. Now, you don't lose them forever, amen? And I'm not saying it's a good thing. Uh, Every parent at some point misplaces the child. Any of you had this happen? I can still remember one time our kids were little, we were in the store and I turn around because kids are, let me say this, kids are ninjas. Okay, kids are ninjas. They're fast, they're quiet, they're stealth. You lose them and they're little. And so we were in the store and I'll never forget, one of our kids went missing, I'm freaking out. We're calling security, guarding the doors, lockdown on the intercom, Driscoll kid. So we're freaking out. The kid was like two feet away, one of those round clothing racks. They got in the middle, played hide and seek, forgot to tell us we were playing, all right? They're like, I'm winning. Like, no, I'm dying, right? You should tell me when we're playing this game. And so what happens is when you're raising kids, we got the five kids, when they were little, they're big now, it's easy to find them. My sons are taller than me, I can't lose them. They could lose me, uh, but I can't lose them. Where did dad go? I'm like, oh, I'm here. So uh, <laughs> what happens is uh, when the kids are little though, you lose them, especially in a crowd. So, you know, when, when our kids were little, some of our kids were wanderers. Any, any of you have those kids? They're walking with you and anything shiny, tasty, they're just, where are they going? They don't know, are they, they don't know where they're going. Are they ever gonna come back? They have no idea, they just disappear. How many of you have those kids? You're like, golly, they're a free range kid, right? They're a free range kid, put a tracker on them, okay? Other kids are naughty kids and when you're not looking, they run. How many of you had the runner? Oh yeah, you could tell a person like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, I had the runner, the stinking runner. I pulled a hamstring trying to get that kid. Some of you had the wanderer, some of you had the runner. That's the naughty kid, off they go, right? You know what? What Jesus is saying is, I didn't lose any of the kids. 
Jesus goes and finds all the wanderers and he chases all the runners, amen? How many of you, okay, let's talk about you. You're the children of God, picked on your kids. How many of you are the wanderers? You're like, oh, she's hot. God's like, so's hell, come back, come back, come back. Stop wandering, right? How many of you are the runner? You're like, oh, I'm gonna go do what I want, right? Here's the good news. Jesus doesn't lose any of the children of God. If you're a wanderer, he finds you. If you're a runner, he's faster than you. Jesus is faster than you. As some of you are the obedient kids, we had one obedient kid that was always right on my hip, literally. I won't say the name publicly, but I will tell him at dinner tonight, it'll be fun. But this kid was always on my hip, but he was short and he was always out of my line of sight. So I'm like, where's the, where'd he go? He's like, I'm here. And he poked me, I'm like, okay, good, good, good. Some of you are that kid. You're always right on the Lord's hip. You don't wander, you don't run. What Jesus is saying, God is a father, that Christians are a family, that we are the children of God, and that he doesn't lose anyone. If you wander, he brings you back. How many of you, Jesus has done that for you? You're like, man, I wandered. Jesus brought me back. How many of you are runners? Jesus chased you down. And this leads to the question, what about Judas? This, this is the question that Jesus is, is answering in his prayer. So Jesus picked 12 guys to be his disciples. They were with him for three years, mentored by him. And one of the guys at the end was a total betrayer. His name was Judas Iscariot. What about Judas? Did God lose him? Let me say this. Sometimes the question is asked, can a Christian lose their salvation? Wrong question. The question is, can a father lose a child forever? Can God the Father lose a child forever? Answer, no. It's not a kid who saves himself and it's not a child of God who saves himself. It's that they are saved, they are adopted, they belong to the parent who never leaves nor forsakes nor fails them. That's God the Father. So what about Judas? Right? What he says here, I kept them, um, I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, right? Jesus got all the wanderers and the runners, except the son of destruction. A little bit about Judas. We're in John's gospel. We'll just look at what John's gospel has revealed previously. In John 6, verse 70, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, one of you is the devil. That had to be an awkward moment, right? One, two, three, not it. You know, like, uh, I have an 8% chance of being the devil. <laughs> That's stressful. But Jesus knew that even though there were 12, there were only 11 hearts that were devoted and committed to him, right? You can go to church and not have a heart for Jesus. You can go to Bible college or seminary and not have a heart for Jesus, right? There were 12 present, but only 11 hearts were devoted. That Satan was aligned with Judas and Judas was aligned with Satan. And then he says in John chapter 12, verse six, that Judas was a thief. Judas was the CFO. He was the money keeper for the ministry. So people like you, you, you give generously, thank you. And then the money goes into the account. And Judas was the bookkeeper. He was the accountant. He was supposed to pay the bills and do all of the accounting. And, and, and what he did says that he was a thief and he would help himself to the money. This is like an employee at a store says, you know, I, I think I deserve a raise. Open the till, I'll just take care of that. Nice and easy, put that in my pocket. Now, as we look at Judas, let me ask you this. Are you honest at work? Because we can look at Judas and say, I can't believe he stole. But how many of you are in management or ownership of a company? Employee theft out the back door actually costs companies more money than actual theft out the front door. People take product home, they steal stuff, and oftentimes we steal time from our employer. We miss bill, or we're wasting time, we're not doing the job, but we're getting paid for work we're not doing. We need to be careful that as we look at Judas, we don't do so with a religious heart and say, what a terrible guy, but with a repentant heart saying, am I a good employee? Right? Am I Am I actually doing the job that I'm paid to do and only taking the things that I am supposed to take? But he was a thief. And this wasn't at the end, this was the totality of Jesus' ministry. So even when times were really lean and hard for Jesus' ministry and every ministry hit these, hits these seasons, 
and things were tough. Judas knew that part of the reason that things were tight is because he had been stealing from Jesus. He doesn't have a heart. Number three, it says in uh, John 13, verse 27, as they're eating the last supper, Satan enters who? Judas. That means he's an unbeliever. A Christian is filled with the spirit of God and cannot be fully possessed, overtaken and overcome by demonic spirits or Satan himself. That ultimately Judas, his whole ministry career was working with and for Satan until finally he so opened himself up that he became an agent of the devil. All of that to say that Judas didn't lose his salvation. Judas was one who faked having faith. Let me tell you this, you can't lose your salvation, but you can fake it. You can fake it. Judas was a guy who didn't lose it. He never had it, he faked it. Now here's the good news of the true children of God, Jesus loses no one. Okay, number two, the family of God is like a big blended family. Okay, some of you have blended families. Blended families can be beautiful families, but from the people I talk to, they're also complicated, amen? Right, because there's this family and then there's this family and then they get married and they pull everybody together and now they're one new family. And what you find is different families do things differently and you gotta figure it all out. The church of Jesus Christ is local families that all together make one big blended family. And what Jesus is praying here is that the, the, the family of God would be one as God is one. This language of oneness, it, it, it is really significant. Jesus was a Hebrew, he was raised as a Hebrew. In that day and to our own day, um, devout Hebrews will quote a verse in the Old Testament, actually three times a day. It's Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, it's called the Shema. And what it is, it's this, it's hero Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. So if you're a Hebrew kid, you grow up saying that every day. The Lord our God, he is one. And that word for one, it is multiple that come together as one. Think of it like a cluster of grapes. There is one cluster made up of many grapes. There is one God made up of multiple persons. It's an intimation toward the doctrine of the Trinity after which our church is named. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three persons, one God. They are one, they are, they are unified, they are in agreement, they have common shared vision, they don't have division because they have one vision. And what Jesus is here doing, he's saying, I pray that they would be one as we are one. What big brother Jesus is saying is that he and the father are unified as one and the rest of the family needs to be unified, okay? Let me talk about this. In our church family, what this means is that we see this largely as theological and relational. It's two things. So we like to say we open our Bibles to learn and we open our lives to love. So firstly, it's theological, meaning there are things that we believe are in the closed hand. These are really important. And to be a member of the family of God, this is what we believe that the Bible is God's word, that we are sinners by nature and choice, that God created the world, that uh, Jesus is God become a man, that Jesus lived without sin, that he died on the cross in our place for our sins, that he rose from death and that salvation is by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, okay? We believe that. In the open hand, these are things that we as a family can disagree on without being disagreeable. Let me just say this, the only place that everyone agrees on everything is a cult. Okay, any of you have family members you disagree with? Welcome to the family of God, right? In the open hand, so in the closed hand, God made the heavens and the earth. Open hand, how old is it? Old enough, you know, works. It's a great planet, thank you, Lord. All right, I don't know, I don't know when it was made. I couldn't find a stamp on it, you know, it didn't say. Should your kids be homeschooled, private school or public school? Yes, pick one, you know. We believe theologically, that there are things that we hold to and there are other things that we can flex on and disagree about. What this also means is relationally, we value relationships over issues. Some of you would say, no, 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 what about the truth? And what I would say is if you believe somebody is wrong by loving them and building a relationship with them, you'll have a better opportunity to help them learn something. So we like to connect before we correct. 
right? We like to build a relationship before we bring a rebuke. If we believe that there is something that someone needs to learn, the first thing that they need to learn is how much we love them and are for them or care for them because we wanna treat people the way that God treats us. So we're a highly relational church. And for us, that is unity. Unity is around the core beliefs that we have and the great conviction that one of the major, if not the major primary theme of the Bible is love and relationship. That we want people to have a loving, healthy relationship with God and one another. So we like to be biblical and we like to be relational. And for us, we believe those are keys to our unity as a church family. Well, what about other churches? Does this love one another include other church families? Yes or no? It does. I'll tell you something really encouraging and I hope it encourages you. Uh, before Grace and I and the kids moved to the Valley a few years ago, uh, we met with some of the pastors and senior leaders in the Valley and said, we're thinking of coming to the Valley, but we'd only wanna come if we were welcomed and received. We believe in spiritual authority. We believe in honoring authority. And they said, well, are you gonna plant a church or what? I said, I'm not sure, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I just know that we're supposed to come and what happens from there, we'll figure it out. And so they met with me privately and asked all their questions and welcomed us and said, we'd love to have you. And they, they literally prayed over me and welcomed our family to the Valley, which was wonderful. Whole bunch of churches all across the spectrum. And then when we landed here and we announced, you know what, we are gonna start a church and God provided the potential of this building. Dozens of churches from around the Valley in the world started praying for us, some of them publicly, some of them privately. There were churches in this valley that prayed for us, the pastor did from the stage before we even started and you kind people showed up. And then there were dozens of churches around the nation and world that started sending us generous financial gifts. Didn't ask for it, didn't anticipate, that helped us buy the building, renovate the building, launch. It was amazing. I mean, significant generosity from a whole host of churches. I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll be honest with you. Some of these pastors I'd never met. Some of these churches are in other countries I'll never be in. We love you. We're praying for you. You know, God is generous to us. We're generous to you. And then as we started planting, we needed things. So churches in the valley started giving us things. The kids play toy, that was a gift. Stuff in the kids ministry, tables, chairs, gift. Different curtains, gifts. There's stuff all over the property that was given to us by their churches. So if you went to another church and you showed up here like, that looks familiar. We didn't steal it, they gave it, amen? We didn't, no, no commandments violated, right? But they gave it to us. So as I walk around the property, literally all over the property, I see the tangible love and support of other churches in the valley. And I praise God for that. And we have great unity with churches in the valley. I met with a hundred pastors one-on-one -on -one, and then I put together a little pastor's cohort and we invest in leaders. Uh, we've got a, an event coming up February 27th for pastors across the valley and, and the nation and bringing in some leaders. We love pastors. We love pastors' families. We love pastors' kids. And, 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 and I've just learned, you know what? we don't need to criticize other churches because the devil's already taken that job. We don't need to criticize other leaders because the devil's already taken that job. That role's filled. And my thing is, I would rather love somebody and talk to them privately than not know someone and criticize them publicly. Because that's how you and I'd like to be treated, right? If somebody has a problem with us, it'd be like, could you just talk to me? and Could we work it out? As opposed to just letting the whole world get involved, okay? But what we have experienced is great love and unity. And there is a unity among the pastors and churches in the Valley. And we wanna be a part of that. And we wanna encourage that. Now, that being said, this is a great concept, right? That they would be one as we are one. How many of you know that this is difficult to have unity and love in the church? It's a great idea, right? Let me just step into a, sort of a counseling posture for a moment and speak practically about some reasons why unity and love, trust, community, relationship in the church family can be hard. We have some older saints. We have some people that have been in leadership in churches and ministries. We actually have a high percentage of, of significant high horsepower leaders in this church that I praise God for. Sometimes unity and love and trust is hard. Uh, number one, because we are Protestants. In Christianity, there are three teams. Orthodox, which isn't as popular in America. In Russia or Greece, you'll see that being more popular. In America, it's primarily Catholic or Protestant. 
and Catholicism existed and then Protestantism came along seeking some reform, some reformation, some correction. Uh, I was raised Catholic, uh, was an altar boy, went to Catholic school. My grandma, uh, after my grandpa died, became a nun. So I, I get a little bit about the Catholic world. And if you're new, my name's Father Mark. We're glad to have you. Communion is coming up. Just hang in there, okay? Um, that being said, um, to its credit, the Catholic Church has realized that they need to make some reforms and adjustments, and they have done so in more recent years. Many Catholics know and love Jesus, and they're part of the family. So, but as Protestants, what's the root word of Protestant? Protest. And if we're not careful as Protestants, we can get stuck into a posture of who or what we're against rather than a positive message of who and what we're for. And that posture of Protestantism can be criticize, 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 criticize. They're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. And eventually your world is very small. Your relationships are very weak and your pride is very significant. So we need to be careful of that. We wanna have a positive message that we are for the Bible and that we are for Jesus, not necessarily primarily who or what we're against. Number two, sometimes demonic attack comes to a church and or leadership and people are, are hurt. Um, the Bible talks about Jesus is a chief shepherd, leaders are shepherds, people are sheep, and Satan sends wolves. And the way it works is in that day, the sheep would go into a pen to keep them safe. So they're fenced in. And what would happen is if a wolf got into the sheep pen, the sheep were defenseless and they would ravage the flock and they would damage the sheep. Some of you have been in church situations where literally wolves were leaders. The shepherds were the wolves. That being said, um, this is a demonic satanic plan. This is not God's design. Did Jesus have this happen in his own ministry? Yes or no? He did. 12, they were supposed to be shepherds. One, Judas was a wolf filled with Satan come to strike the shepherd and scatter the sheep. So what I don't want you to do is to be uh, someone who has been through a demonic satanic attack on a church and then become bitter because that's a demonic foothold or become isolated because it's not good to be alone. This church is filled with leaders who have been through some difficult things. We love you, we're honored to have you, we're glad to have you. And let me tell you this, the Trinity Church has been a healing, healthy place for my family. We feel loved here, we feel blessed here, we feel encouraged here, we feel safe here. This has been a remarkably healthy, loving, joyful church family. And so if you're new, you've been through something, let me just say welcome. You're surrounded with people who get it. Let's forgive, let's heal up, let's love, let's try again. Let's not let the devil destroy the family. In addition, sometimes people struggle with unity uh, because of church hurt. Someone or something in the history of the church caused them to be hurt. And as a result of being hurt, they haven't gone through the process of forgiving and healing. If that's you, we love you, welcome here. But at some point you've got to forgive church hurt and at some point you've got to heal up. And I just feel inclined this morning in my spirit to make a particular emphasis toward the men. What I find is that sometimes men will be in church and some church hurt will happen. Someone will offend them, something will offend them, something is not to their liking. It may even be sinful, it may even be wrong. But rather than forgiving and healing, they nurse a grudge and they remain wounded and broken. What happens then is those men don't lead their family. And what happens is those men sort of disconnect from relationship and church and isolate themselves. And then the wife is trying to walk with the Lord and trying to get the kids to walk with the Lord. And the wife is feeling very conflicted because she is seeking to pursue the Lord and her husband is still nursing church hurt. Men, for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the good of your families. We need to forgive what we need to forgive. We need God to heal what needs to be healed so that we can lovingly walk with our family. Because here's, here's what it says. Jesus says, I pray that they would be one as we are one. The first commandment that I can think of in the Bible where God says that more than, that two people should be one is what? The marriage. The husband and the wife will be one. 
This oneness that Jesus is praying for in the church, it starts in your family, it starts in your marriage. The two of you be one, your kids walk with you in the will of God as one, your family is part of the church family and together we are one big crazy extended blended family, amen? And one of the first things you learn is when you have an extended family is that not all families do the same thing. So your family does it this way, your family does it this way, your family does it this way. So it is with the other churches. Different churches do things differently. We don't judge them because they belong to the father. That's his family, that's his decision. That's his verdict to render. Our goal is with our family at home and our church family, which is the gathering of all of our collective families to seek to answer Jesus' prayer, to love one another, to do life together and to be one together. And I'll just say it again, men, is that happening in your marriage? Is that happening in your family? Is that happening in your leadership? Do you understand that? If not, you're giving the devil a foothold. Your wife is feeling that difficulty of being in that vulnerable place and your children are confused. You can fix that right now. You can forgive who you need to forgive. You can invite God to heal what he needs to heal. You can be one with God, one with your spouse, one with your family, one with our church family, one with other church families. And you can literally walk out of here saying today, Jesus' prayer was answered. Because God is willing to help you to do what he wants you to do. Okay. Um, Next slides, please. Um, Jesus has this little line. The scripture might be fulfilled. He's gonna tell us uh, in just a few verses, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. So Jesus here is nearing the end of his life and he is praying and here's what Jesus is praying. Everything that is happening was foretold in the scriptures by God, it's being fulfilled. If you're new, this is gonna be an awesome day for you, okay? Because you're gonna learn something about the Bible and that is that God promises and then fulfills. How many of you have had people that make promises that they don't fulfill? All right, a couple of us chuckle, right? That means you've lived on the earth for more than 15 minutes if you've experienced this. People promise and they don't fulfill. God promises, God fulfills. God always fulfills all of his promises. That's amazing. And we call this prophecy. And when the Bible was written, 25% of the Bible was prophetic in nature. It was God saying, here's what's gonna happen. Because the God who knows the future, rules the future, reveals the future so that we can trust the word that he gives. And the centerpiece of human history and the centerpiece of prophecy is this guy, Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna share a ton of verses with you, okay? You're gonna, and if, if you need to take notes, it's in the notes. If you sign up for daily devotions, it's in there. But this is what's going through Jesus' mind as Jesus is living and preparing for his dying and rising as he is in the midst of praying, what is running through his mind is scripture. All of this is being fulfilled. So here, I'll give you some examples. A thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, Psalm 41, nine says, my close friend with whom I trusted ate my bread and lifted his heel against me. Who is that? Judas Iscariot. In that culture, you would sit on the floor to eat, You would walk on the roads and your feet were really gross because animals walked on those roads. These are dirt roads. And it was the height of disrespect when you're sitting on the floor reclining and eating to put your foot up because your foot had a lot of funk on it. Some of you are saying, Pastor Mark is not flexible. I know, for sure. No, this hurts like crazy. In my resurrection body, I will have massive bangs. I will dunk a basketball and I'll be able to pick something up if I drop it. But today, this is all I got for you, okay? So... You put your foot up, that's ultimate disrespect. That was Judas Iscariot. 500 years before Jesus walked the earth, Zechariah 11, 12 and 13. They weighed out as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That's a section in the temple. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Was that fulfilled? It's right in the midst of being fulfilled in John 17 as Jesus prays. Judas is going to betray Jesus for how many pieces of silver? Not 29, not 31. Because God always fulfills his promise. And then before he hangs himself and takes his life, Judas takes it to the temple and he throws it in. He fulfills everything that was promised and prophesied. God didn't make Judas sin. God knew that Judas would sin and God used Judas's sin for his glory over history. This is what you need to know. Sin 
and the devil are bad, but God is strong, so strong that he can even use what was evil for good. See, that's, that's encouragement because there's evil in your life. God can still use that for good. A thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, Psalm 22, 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. As they go to murder Jesus, they strip him nearly naked. And then the soldiers, they literally roll the dice to see who gets the most valuable articles of clothing. Next slide, please. A thousand years before Jesus walked the earth in Psalm 22, 16, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced where? Hands and feet. Where was Jesus pierced? Hands and feet. I wanna tell you that crucifixion was invented by the Persians and it wasn't invented for a few hundred years. The Bible here is not only prophesying the crucifixion of Jesus, it is prophesying the invention of crucifixion. 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, the prophet Isaiah in 53, 12 says, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus fulfilled that when he died between two thieves who were guilty, though he was not guilty. Psalm 3420, a thousand years before Jesus walks the earth, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Crucifixion is painfully slow death by asphyxiation. You are crucified and what happens is that your body slouches on the cross, the lungs exhale and you begin to wane in and out of consciousness because you cannot breathe. And so if you are taking too long to die and they wanna hasten your death, let's say it's a, a weekend for them and they want the day off, they would come and break your legs so that you could no longer push yourself up off of your pierced feet to get air in your lungs. The Bible says that Jesus died so quickly that none of his bones was broken because the scriptures are true. A thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, Psalm 22, one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's exactly what the Lord Jesus quoted on the cross as he was dying in your place for your sins as your savior, because he loves you and he wants you to be forgiven and get new life. Jesus quotes the Bible because Jesus fulfills the Bible. 700 years before he walked the earth, Isaiah 53 says he was cut off from the land of the living. That means he died. Stricken for the transgressions of my people, that Jesus would die, not for his sin, but for your sin, for my sin, for our sin. And then the story continues. Next slide, please. 700 years before he walked the earth, Isaiah 53, nine, the next verse says, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man and his death. Was Jesus rich or poor? He's poor. And when he died, he didn't own a grave. They had nowhere to bury his body. So there was a quiet disciple of him, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who had a wealthy tomb and was a well-known man, and he gifted that to Jesus. So Jesus died, and then the prophecy was fulfilled, and he was laid in the tomb of a rich man. That's amazing. The good news for Joseph is he got it back. I mean, it was just a, it was like, a, you know, here's the keys, I'm checking out. I was just here for the weekend. That's how it went for Joseph. He got it back. Psalm 1610, a thousand years before Jesus walks the earth, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is the grave, or let your holy ones see corruption. Jesus is the holy one of God. And when he went into the grave, he didn't remain there and his body didn't um, completely undergo the full deterioration process because he was raised in newness of life, conquering Satan, sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God. Jesus Christ walked the earth, fully healed, fully revealed as healed. Jesus beats death, friends. You need to know that. No one else beats death, just Jesus. And then what did he do? Well, Psalm 68, 18 promised thousand years before he walked the earth, you ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train. That after he died and rose, Jesus ascended back into heaven where he had come down from and he took departed saints with him. Ephesians says that those who died before Jesus died were awaiting their deliverance. And when he went, their souls went with him because Jesus opened the kingdom of heaven. And then what is Jesus doing today? Psalm 110, one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right now, Jesus is high and exalted. Jesus is over every king and kingdom. Jesus is over every culture and nation. And that there is coming a day when he will return, he will judge the living and the dead. And literally like you're gonna put your feet up on the coffee table tonight, that's how Jesus is going to treat his enemies. He will rule over all. Now, all of this to say, this is the book that God wrote, amen? I was in college, I was a brand new Christian. I didn't know anything. I'm sitting down with my pastor and he starts showing me all of this. My mind exploded. And he asked this tremendously important question. And I would ask you, he's like, if God didn't write this book, then who did? 
Who can predict the future? Who knows the future in painstaking detail? No other religion has this kind of prophecy in its quote unquote sacred writings because only the God of the Bible knows the future. Only the God of the Bible reveals the future. Only the God of the Bible reveals the future. And so here's what I wanna tell you. All of the prophecies and promises that came true at Jesus' first coming give us great confidence because the rest of the Bible is about promises and prophecies that will come true at Jesus' second coming where the dead rise, the nations are judged, unbelievers are eternally sentenced and believers are eternally blessed. The God who fulfilled all the promises is good for all the rest of the promises. And here's what I would tell you. This is the only perfect thing on earth. This is the word of God. This is revelation from God. It's not speculation about God. And I just shared with you a few of what are thousands of prophetic promises. And this book is amazing. And if you will read it, God will meet with you and he will use it to change your life. And in the most difficult seasons and circumstances, if you commit God's word to memory, you will be echoing Jesus' example in John 17, where he's in the midst of his darkest, most difficult day and what he is doing is he is running scripture through his heart and his mind, knowing that he is living in obedience to the word of God and fulfilling all that God intends for his destiny. You can do the same if you will know the word of God, amen? And I'm excited for you, what a great year. Figure out your Bible reading plan, figure out how you're gonna get to know God through his word this year. And in those moments, you can then bring those to memory. And as Jesus is praying, last slide, please. Five things that make life worth living. John 17, 13 through 19. But now I'm coming to you, Jesus is going back to heaven. These things I speak in the world that they have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is what? Truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Number one, God has joy for you. That's amazing. Jesus says, I'm praying that my joy will be in you. If your joy is in this world, you do not have joy because this is not a joyful world. And if your joy is tethered to your circumstances, your circumstances will ebb and flow, they will come and go. But if your joy is contingent upon that unchanging, unbreakable, loving, eternal relationship with God and the Holy Spirit in you, part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And I'll tell you what, I have been honored to walk with the Lord Jesus since I was 19 years of age in college. I have been through good times and bad times. I have been through light times and dark times. And what I can assure you is this, in every moment, every season, there is an opportunity for joy. Because there's an opportunity to learn more about Jesus. There's an opportunity to become more like Jesus. There's an opportunity to start to understand that this world is not our home, that this is as bad as it will ever be, that this is as close to hell as we'll ever get. And we just need to keep headed home until we see Jesus face to face. And there's joy. There's an eternal joy that comes into the child of God because our connection is to the Lord and our connection is to the kingdom, which sustains our emotional state as we venture and journey through this world. Christianity is not to be joyless. Christianity is not to be cheerless. Christianity is to be joyful and it is to be cheerful because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Number two, another gift that God has for you, truth. He says, your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. It is really nice to know that somewhere there is truth. I don't know about you, something happens. You watch this news channel, that news channel. You're like, I don't know what happened. They both say the exact opposite thing. I can't figure out what's right or wrong, what's true or false, what's up or down, what's fact or fiction. This is truth, this is the truth of God's word. It's really nice in a world where everything is conjecture and spin and speculation, that there is something that you can depend on, that it was true yesterday, it's true today, it'll be true tomorrow. I know that culture in the world will change. 2000 years ago, there were issues. 2000 years from now, there will be issues. Cultures will come and go. Religions will come and go. Philosophies will come and go. Ideologies will come and go. But the word of God remains forever. That's what it says. And that's all true. So there is truth. Number three, you have a purpose. God has a mission for you. Jesus says, Father, as you've sent me, so I am sending them into the world. About 40 times, the gospel of John uses this language of sent. This is the language of a missionary. We sometimes think of a missionary as one who's sent to a foreign culture across the world, which is true. 
but a missionary is also one that is sent across the street or across the cubicle or across the lunchroom because there is someone that doesn't know God that God loves. Let me tell you this. What happens is you meet Jesus and he says, your home is in heaven. You're like, well then let's, let's go. Let's go, let's go right now. And Jesus says, no, 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 not yet. I'm sending you as a missionary into the world because there are people that I love that don't know me yet and you need to extend a hand to them on my behalf. Someone did this for you if you're a Christian, right? Somebody prayed for you, somebody talked to you, somebody brought you to church, somebody bought you a Bible. For me, it was grace. 17 years of age, she gives me a Bible, right? There are people in your life that are divine sacred appointments. People at work, people in your neighborhood, people at school. And God has sent you there. And he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. What can happen is just missiological language, but God doesn't want us to be separated from the world or corrupted by the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. All the people are in the world, so we wanna be in relationship with them. But we don't want our morals, our values, our character, our convictions to be defined by the world, but defined by the word. So for the church, let me give you an analogy. Um, a boat goes through the water, and the goal of a boat is not to take on the water. Amen? Even if you're not good at sailing, you know that water is better outside of the boat than in the boat, amen? What happens when the water comes in the boat, it sinks the boat. The church is like that, right? The world is just a storm. It's a sea of storm. We are passing through this dark world. The church of Jesus Christ is like a ship and we're grabbing people and we're pulling them onto the ship. Come with us, come with us, come with us, come with us. There's a safe harbor ahead in the kingdom of Jesus. We're supposed to stay in the world because that's where the rescue mission is to get all the people, but we're not to allow the world or the water of the world to use the analogy into the boat. We do sex differently. We do money differently. We do power differently. We do relationship differently. We do family differently. We do gender differently because we don't wanna take on the water. We wanna pass through the water and take the people who are drowning and invite them into the boat. That's the mission of the church and the children of God. And then he also, number four, gives us identity. He says, as I have consecrated and sanctify myself, so I consecrate and sanctify them. This is language of holiness. See, when Grace and I first got married, I learned that there are sacred things. Like we went to make our registry. If you're a single guy, you're in for a massive learning experience. Um, and what happened was we go to register and Grace is like, okay, we need this kind of cutlery and this kind of, what do we need two kinds of cutlery? This is for daily use. This is for holidays and special occasions. I didn't know there were special forks. I didn't know that. I'm a single guy. I feel like a spork is multifunctional, meets all my needs. We don't need, you know, salad fork, food fork, soup spoon, all these things I'm learning I didn't know existed. Then you find out there are special towels for special seasons and there are special decorations. I didn't know any of this. Those things are holy, they are sacred, they are literally set apart. How many of you have fine china in your house? And the first thing the teenage son learned was, that's not for cereal, right? Mom made sure he learned that. When Jesus looks at his people, what he says is, you're special and you're special and you're special and you're special and you're consecrated and you're sanctified and you're set apart. And in this moment, Jesus is telling us that he is consecrated and sanctified and he is understanding his identity in the midst of great opposition. They're gonna arrest him. They're gonna lie about him. They're gonna say that he's a demon-possessed alcoholic and his mom is a liar. They got some terrible things to say about Jesus, but he knows who he is. He is consecrated. He is holy. He is sanctified. He is set apart for a purpose. You, if you are a child of God, what he does, he says, you're special and you're special and you're special and you're holy and you're clean and you're forgiven. And it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what he says. It matters what he says. That's you as a child of God. And let me close with this. Number five. Two thousand years ago, Jesus is on the earth and he prayed for you. It struck me this week in a way that I still haven't fully comprehended. 
So I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you, and then I want you to think about it. After the first service, when I shared this, I literally had multiple people run up and go, I've never even heard that or thought of that. They want to talk about it. Maybe in your life group or with your family, this is what you talk about. Jesus didn't just pray for you 2,000 years ago. Jesus is praying for you right now. See, sometimes when we talk about prayer, we say, you need to pray to God. Well, the first thing you need to know is that Jesus is praying for you. Right now, Jesus is in the presence of God the Father and they are having a conversation about you. Did you know that? I'll read you a verse. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost. That's Greek for Scottsdale, amen? I mean, this was, they're in Jerusalem. We're the uttermost, right? Especially if you're from the west side. I mean, wow, that's far away. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. An intercessor is one who loves you and wants to get between you and another person or you and a problem and help make it all good. Jesus lives to intercede. Jesus was on the earth. He's faced what you're facing. He was tempted with what you're tempted by. He has battled and defeated whatever you're battling. He understands, he sympathizes, he empathizes. There is, there, is a, there is a conscientious compassion in Jesus that is unprecedented and unparalleled. And Jesus goes into heaven and right now the Holy Spirit is in you and he teaches you how to pray. Your prayers go from the Spirit of God in you through Jesus who is your intercessor or your mediator. And he takes that request and he brings it on your behalf to God the Father. And, and, and then God has a conversation about you. Here's what they're going through. Here's what they're struggling with. Here's what their needs are. This one's a wanderer, but we'll get them. That one's a runner, we'll find them. The angels are eavesdropping and they're listening in. And some of them are being sent on divine assignment to help you. I'll read you another verse. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Jesus is praying for you right now. Jesus right now has you on his heart. Jesus right now has you on his mind. Nothing that you're going through is apart from his awareness or understanding. Nothing that you need is beyond his conscious awareness. Just just think of this for a moment. Jesus is alive right now. And he didn't just pray for you 2,000 years ago. He's praying for you right now. He's talking to Father about you right now. That's amazing. I think prayer is the most intimate thing. That's why some couples don't pray together. It's too intimate. You need to get over that and beyond that. Invite God into the middle of it all. So what we're gonna do, I'm gonna pray for you. I want you to take a minute to pray. Let your request be known. Jesus is praying for you. Feel free to pray to him. We'll collect our tithes and offerings. That's how we worship God. And I'm gonna invite the band up. And as we get ready to sing together, and as we sing together, it's a form of praying together. Our voices come together to be sent into the presence of God. And I want you to remain seated and just take a few moments. Pray, pray for yourself, pray for others. Talk to Jesus who's willing to listen and is talking to the Father about you. Father God, as we come together for a moment as a church family, for a sacred family meeting, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're our big brother who intercedes. Lord Jesus, my mind is just exploding with wonder and joy. That Lord Jesus, you didn't just live 2,000 years ago, you live today. And you didn't just pray 2,000 years ago, you pray every day. And that Jesus, as you were going to the cross, these dear people were on your heart and in your mind. And Lord Jesus, they still are. 
Lord Jesus, I pray for those who need their burden lifted that you would lift it now in prayer. I pray for those who need their sin forgiven that you would forgive it now in prayer. I pray for those who need the provision of your presence to receive that now. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. And Lord Jesus, that you would talk to the Father about us, that's amazing. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Please awaken our wonder. Please enlighten our understanding. Please open our heart and mind to pray to the God who prays for us in Jesus' good name. Amen. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.